Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, which I believe is on page 8 of the Pew Bible. We have begun looking at the calling of Abraham, his fickleness and faith, and God's faithfulness to him. Last week we were in verses 1 to 9. The first three verses is that incredible, fabulous, amazing promise of God to Abraham. And it's really the promise of the gospel, as Paul tells us. And it's a promise that through Abraham, the whole world will be blessed through his offspring, Jesus. Then at verses 4 to 9, we saw how Abraham responded to that promise, basically in the first blush of gratitude for those amazing words, he believed and he obeyed the Lord. Uh, The Lord called him to go and so he went from his family and his country and his kindred and he went to the place the Lord showed him. He not only went, but he worshipped. He built altars and he worshipped. And he not only did that, but he was a blessing to the nation. He, he, He witnessed to the living God in the midst of the Canaanites, publicly, very publicly, at their places of worship. He built altars to the true God. And also he waited. He lived as a sojourner, as an alien and a stranger. He he dwelt in tents in the promised land because he was waiting on the greater hope, the heavenly country that was promised to him. And so God did this incredible thing and Abraham responded really well. And now we come to a passage where it is not the case. And at verses 10 to 20 tonight, we see Abraham almost turns everything on its head. And it raises for us the question, how far will God put up with the foolishness, evil, and distrust of his people? How far will God put up with you? Well, let's look at what God did with Abraham. Abraham chapter 12, verses 10. And I'm actually going to read through 13, verse 4. Hear now the word of God. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe. In the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, You are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And Father, we pray that you would press these things into our hearts, that you would show us who you are and who we are before your face and our need of you, and show us Jesus, our Savior. So teach us, we pray, your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How far from God's plans can God's people stray? And how low will he let his name be drugged through the mud before he turns his back on his people and his promises? No sooner does Abraham receive the Lord's promises that he fails to trust the promiser. And we don't know how much time has passed since 1 to 9 exactly. The story of Abraham is compressed. We don't know how long he trusted in the Lord and journeyed and did what God told him to do in verses 1 to 9 before he doubted the Lord in verses 10 and following. It seems fast, though it may not have been, but after his faith came unfaith. He failed in faith when confronted with a famine and the fear of man. And there's a lesson in that just for us. Before I get to the outline and walk you through my main part, there's a lesson right there, though. If you want proof that salvation for Abraham was a gift of God's sovereign grace and not elicited by anything in Abraham or done by Abraham or sustained by Abraham, then this is a passage for you. Those who think God chose Abraham because... God saw that he was a great man, full of faith and piety and obedience, should realize that Abraham was not. He was an idolater before God chose him. We saw that last week. And he was weak, failing, fickle, unbelieving, distrustful as a man whom God chose. He, he began well, believing, but he faltered. Though in the end, by God's grace, he did not fully and finally fall away, but God preserved him and kept him as God does, as Peter says, us. We are preserved by God's power. What an encouragement for us. You may, like so many perhaps young Christians do or immature Christians do, I've done it so many times, mistakenly think that if the gospel has really come home to you, 
and you really believed it, it would therefore produce instant and persistent holiness in your life. That faith would come easily and naturally and sin and evil would be gone and you would just love and trust the Lord from a whole heart every moment of every day. You might think that's the case, but that is not the case. What the case is, is this. Believers continue to sin and to struggle with trusting the Lord. But the promise is true. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Because God does not renege on his promises. God does not abandon his work. And that's the first lesson there. But that's pre-sermon points. Let's look at this passage. Let's unpack it and look at it under three parts. In verses 10 to 13, you see God tests and exposes the trust of our hearts as Abraham meets famine and the fear of man, Pharaoh. And then in verses 14 to 17, you see how God's power guarantees God's plan. Though Abraham fails, God does not. And finally, you see in verse 18, all the way through chapter 13, verse 4, God's grace restores God's servants. God's test exposes the trust of our hearts God's power guarantees God's plan and God's grace restores God's servants. Think about those three things with me. Go back to verse 10 through 13 in the first place. It says there was a famine in the land and a severe famine. So Abram, it says, went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe. Now, do you think famines happen randomly and accidentally? Do you think that in this story, this is some unplanned thing that God had no knowledge of and suddenly we're hearing about it? No, what is happening here is Abram's faith is being tested. In fact, all the promises God had given to him are being tested now. And will Abraham believe? Back at verse 7, God had promised him a seed. That seed would dwell in the land. And now this famine comes along and Abram thinks, I've got to get out of the land. God had, the land promise seems threatened. The promise of his wife and offspring seems threatened. All these things seem so fragile at this point in the story. And uh, if you remember your Peanuts cartoons, Linus is gun shy of this kind of pattern happening time and again. Lucy's reading to Linus from a book that says this, And so the king was granted his wish. And everything he touched would turn to gold. Now the next day, Linus jumps to his feet and he exclaims, Stop, you don't have to read me further. I know just what's going to happen. And off he goes muttering, These things always have a way of backfiring. And it looks that way with the land promise. It seems too good to be true and it's not, it's not going to come to fulfillment. The seed can't even stay in the land it seems. And right there, let's pause and apply that. You can be right where you are supposed to be and trouble comes your way. You can be exactly where God puts you and difficulty overwhelms you. Now in being overwhelmed, Abram gave way to fear and fear brought forth foolishness and even evil. He did not respond well. What did he do? Well, he went down to Egypt and he risked his wife and her reputation and honor 
And he put at risk, humanly speaking, God's plan. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say this is his wife. They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Oh, this is sly. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake, sweetheart. (laughs) Now, what should he have done? I want to pause here and say he should have trusted God. And there's no indication in the text that he did at this point. God had not brought him into the promised land to starve him, just as later God did not bring the Israelites into the wilderness to starve there, but provided manna for them in the wilderness. God had other purposes in mind. Now, it might have seemed to Abraham, and some of us might reasonably have assumed under God's providence, if we had no special command from the Lord, that in light of a famine, well, Egypt's a great place to go because the Nile overflows and it's abundant in resources. Many of us probably would have done the same thing. Yet it does seem like Abraham didn't stop to inquire of the Lord or to seek his help or to ask for his aid because back in 1 to 9, time and again, he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord. But here there's no word of that until the very end of the story. So perhaps here what we see is, I think, his self-confidence but not God-dependence. He is plotting and planning for his own provision, but without looking to the Lord for his daily bread. Now, you may disagree with me because Moses makes no explicit comment against him going to Egypt. Though at the time he makes no explicit comment about Moses or Abraham giving up his wife, he lets Pharaoh rebuke him for that, and that becomes clear. But uh, maybe even if he didn't go wrong there, and some commentators, you know, they're divided. Well, the commentators are divided on that. Certainly his deception here is wrong. Abraham here is savvy enough to know he's got a drop-dead, gorgeous wife. She's going to catch the eye of some Egyptians and he fears for his own life that they'll kill him because then she'll be, a well, a widow and available for marriage. And so he thinks he has a a plan. He thinks he's got an ingenious plan. They just need to tell a little white lie and that will spare him. For her sake, you understand. Verse 13, he says to her, say, you are my sister. Now, that can come across as a command, but it's not. It's really a request and not a command. It might be well translated, and those who know Hebrew better than I would note this. The language is um, the kind of please say. It's a request here. He invites her to choose to play the game with him rather than ordering her to do so. So she's going to be a participant with him, willing in this plot now you're asking yourself how could a woman who as we know from the story 65 years old be so attractive in form as to catch the eye of egyptians who would kill for her well remember at least this if we try to explain it she's going to live to be 127 years old abraham will outlive her by a lot this is still in the generation that lived much longer than the 70 or 80 years you and i get if we live a long life and so perhaps we ought to think of her in her middle years of vigor and vitality 
even her prime years of beauty, if you can see it that way. Not a youth, not in the blush of early womanhood, but like a woman who has come into her own in her day, like a woman perhaps in our day who's 30 or 40, halfway to the end. Isaac's going to be born when she's 90, and that was unusual and laughable, but at 90, and she'll live 30 years beyond that, perhaps that corresponds to something like our 60s which is strikingly unusual. In any case, she is, the scripture says, a real eye catcher, beautiful in form, it says, and Abram's afraid, hence the lie. Now, it's not a whole lie. Sarah actually is his half-sister. You'll see that later in the story. I think it's Genesis 20 that points this out. They shared a common father, though they had separate and different mothers. So there's a kind of truth in the assertion here. But of course, it's a half-truth. And as others have said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole lie. He was aiming to deceive. He sought to deceive, kind of like the underage man who in the time of the war between the states, in order to uh, go and fight in that war, because you had to be 18 in order to enlist, they would take slips of paper and write 18 on them, put them in their shoes, then show up and ask how old they were, they would truthfully say, I'm over 18. (laughs) Well, in any case, how's this lie going to benefit Abraham? Well, he hopes not to be killed. He thought, we have to assume, he thought that if they think she's my wife, they're going to kill me so they can get her. But if they think she's my sister, well, then what kind of position does that place me in? Well, as her older brother, I'm there as her guardian. I could negotiate with her suitors. We can work some deals, make sure they get a little time with Sarah, see if there's mutual interest, find out what the bride price is going to be. And perhaps, as many have tried to explain it, Perhaps, to put it in the best light, Abram thought with Sarah that, you know, we could string this thing out for a little while while we get enough food to survive the famine and then sneak out of town before they really get us. That's one common explanation. Not unreasonable to think that he might be able to do that. Of course, he doesn't foresee that Pharaoh's pimps are trolling for Pharaoh's harem and they point her loveliness out to Pharaoh. And Pharaohs in that day were more than just rulers. They were gods in Egypt. And Pharaohs take what they want. And they don't ask for it. Now I suppose it's at some level uh, an indication of the seriousness with which they took Abraham as the head of a whole delegation of people who had come with him that they actually bothered to pay him and pay him lavishly for her but she is taken from him what do we learn from this well one thing we learn is is we see abraham's heart exposed he's plotted and planned in an independent self-reliant self willed, wise in his own eyes kind of way. And trials expose that about our hearts too. 
instead of contriving to rescue ourselves from a difficult situation, why not turn to the Lord and say, help me. Help me, Lord. And Lord, you promised you would never abandon me, never forsake me, never leave me. I need you. (laughs) But instead, we say to ourselves, woe is me. My circumstances stink. God perhaps has overlooked this child in his family. And so Abraham learns here that self-reliance paves a road of trouble. Trials, in this case a trial of his faith, became a temptation to sin and evil. Now if that's the case in Abraham's life, why does God allow trials to come our way at all? If so often they turn into temptations to sin and evil and we trip into them, fall into them, pursue them, why does he even allow them? Well, the testing of our faith by difficulty brings out the hidden evils of our hearts we did not even know were there. Evils we would not have known were there, but by facing a test or a trial. Evils we need to repent of. Evils that need to come up and out and be seen for what they are. Now that is not to say that God is enticing us to sin. God entices no one to sin. God tests our faith for our good. Satan, the enemy, uses that same test as as an effort to tempt us into sin. God tests us to refine our faith and our trust. Satan tempts us to deny the faith. God tests us to show us our own hearts and draw us close to him. So we'll cling. Satan tempts us to draw our hearts away from the Lord so that we'll walk away. So that the purpose in God's eyes of testing us is to refine our faith and draw us closer. J.I. Packer in his book, Your Father Loves You. Great title says this, I think he's put it well, the reason why the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, and a sure refuge and help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time showing us that we are weak, both mentally and morally, and dare not trust ourselves to find and follow the right road. When we walk along a road in a clear, beautiful day, feeling fine, somebody takes our arm, we might shake them off. I don't need any help. But, but when we're caught in rough country, in a storm, howling, in darkness, and our strength spent, and someone takes your arm to help you, you would thankfully lean on them. And God, says Packer, wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing, Certainly at times, I might add, not always, but to feel at times that that our, our way is rough and perplexing so that we might learn to lean on him thankfully, to drive out of us self-confidence and into his arms. And so his tests expose the hearts of his people. It exposed Abraham. Now, in verses 14 to 17, what do we find? Abraham fails, and his plans fail, but God doesn't fail. God's power guarantees God's plan. 
Notice what happens here. Well, look at verse 15. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abraham, again, can't negotiate here. Whatever Pharaoh wants, Pharaoh gets. And Sarah is gone. And what does he get in her place? This is, this is tremendous failure. What does he get in place of the love of his life, of half of himself, so to speak? Well, verse 16, you know, he got sheep and he got oxen. He got male donkeys and male servants. He got female servants and female donkeys. And he got camels, <laughs> you know. He's gained slaves and animals, but he's lost the most important person in his world. And Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's house that she might take that she might be taken into his harem, that she might be taken into his bed. Now, some think that Pharaoh did in fact defile her, as he had indeed taken her for her appearance and for his pleasure. Others think that Pharaoh intended to marry her first. And there would have been a time of preparation. And meanwhile, God plagued him, thus sparing Sarah. The details are not here. We don't know for sure. I tentatively hold, tentatively hold the latter view. I do so because this scenario, believe it or not, one much like it occurs later in Genesis with just this couple. And in that text, it's explicit that God spares her. And if he spares her later the indignity of this, we might ask, why would God not also have spared her earlier? But the text is silent. In any case, she's exposed to this threat by Abram's plot and her own agreement with it. But this is not the end of the story. What does God do when Abraham has failed. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Even when Abram is faithless, the Lord remains faithful and his power guarantees his plan. We have all kinds of questions. You know, what kind of plagues were these? Sure like to know. How did Pharaoh make the connection that it was on account of Sarah? Did he, in fact, have relations with her? We do not know for sure, but we know that God was true to his word as promised at the end of verse or at the beginning of verse three, all the way in chapter 12, verse three, when, to put it bluntly, he said, you mess with Abraham and you answer to me. Those who bless you, I will bless Those who curse you or dishonor you, I will curse. And God showed up to do exactly what he said he would do. In one fell swoop of a story, Abraham, it seems, put at risk every aspect of the promises of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God promised to make him a great nation. And now here he is. He's left the nation And he's hiding out in the greatest human nation on the earth, Egypt. And he's not in the land that God had shown to him, seeking shelter elsewhere. God had promised him blessing, yet his greatest blessing, Sarah, is gone. God promised to make his name great. And by the end of the story, his name is mud before Pharaoh. And God called him to be a blessing to the nations. Go, be a blessing 
And what has he brought on Egypt at the highest levels of its administration but God's cursing? And it's not Pharaoh's fault primarily. It is Abraham and Sarah's fault. Yet God's promises prove true in the end. Dishonest Abe returns to the land of promise, protected even under Pharaoh's escort. He returns with Sarah. The seed promise is still in play. And he returns rich. Animals of silver and gold are here viewed as positive blessings. And he has learned that through the plagues, God is serious in his intention to curse those who dishonor him, even if Abraham is the one at fault. Now you ask, do our failures have consequences? Was the preacher saying, I can live like the devil and say I believe and all will be well in the end? No, of course not. Do failures have consequences? Absolutely. God, the scripture says, disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines his son. Well, it's not spelled out exactly in this passage how that discipline happened, but you can at least imagine what that conversation must have been like on their way back to Canaan. Sarah turns to Abraham, sweetheart, we were this close to never being together ever again. This was not a good plan. Their tails would have been, you know, between their legs. But do our failures ultimately frustrate the plan of God? And the answer is no. As the hymn writer says, the church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. God's power guaranteed God's plan in the face of God's man's failure. God's man's failure. Now, the third thing is this, and the last thing. In verses 18 and following all the way up to chapter 13, verse 4, God's grace restores God's servant. God doesn't permit him to go his own way indefinitely. He brings him back to his senses with a rebuke from Pharaoh, verse 18. Pharaoh calls Abraham, what's what's this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. He gets rebuked by the pagan, this king of Israel. And God blesses him with wealth and protection he does not deserve. God blesses him with incredible abundance. The bride price was huge. Uh, all the stuff we mentioned before, along with silver and gold, he became rich. He was rich in livestock, rich in silver, rich in gold, rich in servants, and it's because of the Lord. We should pause there and just note that wealth can come by God's blessing. As Job could testify. We aren't to put our hopes in the uncertainty of riches in this life. But we're not to despise wealth when he gives it. We're not to envy the wealthy when God has given it to them. We're not to be proud of it and haughty in spirit if we have it. But we are as Christians to be generous and share with others as God has shared it with us. And we are to put our hopes in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment.
Paul tells Timothy. So, he was rebuked, he was blessed, he was protected, verse 20. Pharaoh gave orders to his men concerning him, sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The kind of orders were, make sure he departs Egypt. But you can imagine, make sure he gets out safely. I don't want these plagues to continue or to get worse. This is obviously a God-watched-over man. And so he gets out of Egypt, and God brings him back into the promised land and brings him back, more than that, to himself. Look at the language of of chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. He retraces his steps in reverse from how he got to Egypt. Verse 3, he journeyed from the Degev, that's the southern wilderness, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had built an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So he's a pilgrim, and he is returning to worship the Lord at the altar. And what is the significance of an altar? An altar is a place of atoning sacrifices where another is offered in substitute for the sinner. He goes back to the place and starts all over again with God. At, we might say, the foot of the cross for which every offering in the Old Testament is brought a prefiguring and a type of the one true, final, full, complete, perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Now the devil will tell you when you have sinned that you can never go back to God. God will never forgive you. Some of the stuff some of you people have done... That's not in the notes. I never talk to you like you're you people. You don't want to know the stuff I have done as a Christian. And I'm not going to tell you now or you'll never come back to this place. That's true. Most of you wouldn't come back. Plus my children are here. That's true. But God is the God of new beginnings. His mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. So Abraham returns to the promised land. He goes back to the altar to publicly worship and give thanks to God. And that's what we are to do. If you have messed up royally, don't say to yourself, but my deeds have brought such shame on the name of Christ. He'd never have been. Don't say to yourself, I have so miserably failed and in the process, my waywardness and my wickedness has devastated the the lives of the people I love so I could never be forgiven. Don't say to yourself, surely Christ wants nothing to do with someone who has been so stupid and so stubborn. Abraham shows you that the way back is the way of the cross. It's at the foot of the cross and that the way forward through failure is to return to the Lord who never lets us go. And that journey is not a pilgrimage to the Middle East. That is just a journey in your heart to bow before the Lord of glory and say, I did this thing. Have mercy upon me, Lord Jesus. Forgive me. I'm sorry. When Abraham at the end discovers that the promise of Romans 8 is true, that nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not tribulation, not distress, not famine, not danger, 
not sword. There was grace at the beginning for Abraham. There was grace in the middle. And there was grace in the end. The grace that restores. And this is the grace that is offered to you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your grace. And we bless you that Jesus is kind and merciful that you spared him not to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And where our hearts have been hard, make them tender. Where we have turned our face away, turn us home. And Jesus, go and get the one who is far from you and carry us on your shoulders in your name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Come Thou Fount, O to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Amen.